Hi, it's Sasha here. Before we get into this episode of Jane Austen Tations, I just wanted to give you a quick content warning for discussions of fantasies around non-consent and reluctance that take place during this episode. Pling! I love the pling. It's um, it's a triangle. I could tell. I could tell it was a triangle. Thanks. Yeah, perfect. Anyway, hello and welcome to episode, I want to say four, of Jane Austen Tations, the podcast where we watch and review every Jane Austen adaptation ever filmed. Uh, I am Sasha Sienna, a writer and general performing person who is just really into Jane Austen for some reason. And you are Jess. Yes, I am Jessica Law, a journalist, musician, dilettante and flaneur, here to give you some very brief history snippets that I picked up while just wandering around stately homes. <laughs> um, I have to ask, what is a flaneur? Is it a person who makes flan? I wish it was a person who made flan. <laughs> it's, uh, it's somebody who just sort of bumbles around town, just sort of watching the world go by. It's ac- it actually used to be my main form of exercise before all this. <laughs> I just, you know, I, I would walk several miles a day just, just wondering about. I feel like that's actually probably a bit more relevant to this podcast than someone who makes flan. Yeah, it would be nice to make a flan that doesn't just collapse in on itself, but I'll I'll keep that till another day, I think. That will be for our next podcast, Flan Ostentations. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, shall we get on with the actual podcast bit? Oh, I suppose. Better be sensible. <laughs> so this month, we are going to be talking about two adaptations of Northanger Abbey. Uh, so we watched... First of all, Northanger Abbey 2007 adaptation starring Felicity Jones and J.J. Fields. And then we immediately followed that with the 1987 adaptation of Northanger Abbey starring Catherine Schlesinger and Peter Firth. And then I proceeded to just lie on the living room floor with a cold flannel on my head. Yeah, I I think the 1987 adaptation has that effect on people sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So... These are obviously two, I say obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably for information such as, these are two very different adaptations. Uh, Jess, what was your impression? So I thought that the the first was, you know, a, a really heartwarming, uh, relaxing, quite historically accurate and interesting story about, you know, a, a young girl's preconceptions of the world. And the second one was a horrifying farrago <laughs> of clownish melodrama um, and had very little merit. Um, that's that's a wonderful review of that film, I think. Yeah, uh, hard to argue with it. Um, yeah, the thing is, Northanger Abbey is like one of my favourite books of all time. It's, it's I've said for a long time that it's my favourite Jane Austen book and I don't think it actually is necessarily my very favourite but it's the one that I think it gets the least love. It's the one that's the most underrated so I tend to say it's my favourite even though my favourite might be Pride and Prejudice but that feels like a really basic thing to say. So I love adaptations of Northanger Abbey because there are so few of them compared to like adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, say. But yeah, the 1987 one is an experience. It certainly is. I mean, I can really see why you love uh, Northanger Abbey, like from the 2007 version, because it, yeah, it it was especially one of my favourites that I've watched so far, because it is just so underrated and it's such a good story and it's so Mm. relatable in so many ways and I think it's actually a really good Jane Austen story to start with because it's almost as if the main character enters Regency society along with us because yeah she's, she's 17 isn't she and she's very young from the countryside doesn't know much about life and society and then she gets whisked away to Bath and learns often the hard way about uh, you know regency life 
So it's very much a sort of, she's the viewpoint character and everything gets laboriously explained to her and, and therefore to us. Uh, yeah, very much. And I think that when I first read it, when I was about 15 or so, I saw so much of myself in Catherine Morland. I mean, a lot of it was because she's a very, very melodramatic teen who's super into books and reads too much into everything. And I was also a very melodramatic teen who was super into books and reads too much into everything. But yeah, you're right. A lot of it is because she is getting this introduction to a society that was also unfamiliar to me. Yeah. And it's great to be able to see that world through her eyes. Uh, one of the best scenes um, that I think put that across was at the very start where she, they, uh, her and her, is it her aunt? It's not her aunt. Um, so the people that she goes down with, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, they are like family friends. Ah, uh, yes. And they're very wealthy family friends, aren't they? And then her and Mrs. Gardner go to this uh, assembly room in Bath and it's just noisy and crowded and absolutely jam-packed with shouting mm-hmm. people. And you just think some things never change. Like, that. It, that's just like our clubs. It's just the same, just stressful, pressing yeah. atmosphere. And I thought the whole film was just a really great way of putting across Bath society and life in Bath. Like, I bet you could read it as a history book. Yes, I think the 2007 version absolutely just like really nails that atmosphere of being in Bath. Um, I think that scene that you're talking about where they go in and it's just like crammed in like sardines and they've gone there kind of, you know, to meet people and to socialise. But when they get there, they realise they don't actually know anyone in this just crowd of strangers and they actually have a really awkward time. Oh, I thought that was such a good portrayal of that feeling. And then we went and we watched the 1987 version where they just like Mrs. Gardner and Catherine. I'm so sorry. It's not Mrs. Gardner at all. It's Mrs. Allen. Mr. and Mrs. Allen. Oh, no. I've already said Mrs. Gardner. I know. I've been reading Pride and Prejudice with my Jane Austen book club. Oh. And um, I have been saying Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, even though that is wrong. Yeah, so the Allens are her family friends and they are kind of, they're not mega, mega wealthy like Mr. Darcy wealthy, but they're certainly rich compared to Catherine Morland and her family. So I was just going to say the, like, the sheer embarrassment of that situation is something that we can all relate to. Oh, absolutely. Like thinking that you're going to have a really brilliant time and then you get there and you're just like, oh, no. This is not fun at all. And you're saying that in the 2007 version, it's different to the... Yes, so in the 2007 version, they just get that atmosphere so brilliantly. You know, Mrs. Allen and Catherine Morland, they go into the ballrooms, the assembly rooms, which it was kind of like the public ballrooms where people would just go to be at balls. And um, they're just squeezed in among all these strangers, just having... A really awkward time and then they go to where uh there's a room where you can get tea and refreshments and things but they go there and there's there isn't a space for them to have tea so they haven't got tea things in this the tea room um and they don't know anyone to help them because you'd need someone to pour for you you know to help you out um, and they don't know anybody there to do that for them so it's awkward there and then you watch the 1987 version where Mrs. Allen and Catherine are they they sweep in to this mostly empty room. They stand in the middle of the dance floor, loudly proclaiming about how full it is. There is no one around. There's people in the background, but they they basically they're social distancing here. It's it's a COVID safe ballroom, and. They're just complaining about how massively packed it is. And then Mrs. Allen stands in the uh, in the middle of the dance floor and is like, oh, how vexing. <laughs> there are no tea things here. Like, why would there be tea things in the middle of the ballroom? It's almost like... It makes no sense. I, and I got this impression from the 1986 version through a lot of it that they're... It's like the set designers and the script writers just were not speaking to each other at all. And it was almost as if they were delivering the lines from a different script to the setting that they were in and they were just like where is the tea things yes. <laughs> the invisible tea things but that yeah 
I think I was just going to say that there, there are a couple of other moments of acute embarrassment that the 1986 version really misses out on. And they're like kind of the turning points of the entire novel. Mm. So there's this one moment where she has she has made managed to make friends, but she's made two sets of friends. She's made some quite sort of sensible friends whose names I've forgotten, I'm afraid. The Tilneys. The Tilneys, that's it. Yeah. And then she's made another set of friends who are quite reckless and sort of louche. I uh, can't the remember. Thorps. Okay, yes, yeah, so the Tilneys are sensible, the Thorpes are quite louche. And then she agrees to go on a nice sensible walk with the Tilneys, but then the Thorpes are like, oh, but wouldn't you like to come on a ride in our phaeton? Which is basically... A, a chariot. It's an ancient Greek chariot because everyone in the Regency was for some reason trying to be like the ancient Greeks. Yeah. And then she gets in this horrible misunderstanding, this embarrassing situation where she's double booked and she thinks that the um, Tilneys have been told but they, they haven't really and then they come to visit her and then she drives past on the fight on seeing them knocking at her door and and... Just it's that awful. awful. It's, it's, it's just, just awful. So it's... embarrassing. And it's something that everybody has done at some point in their life. And then the 1986 version doesn't even have that scene. They just go no, for a I nice know. ride and it's on like, the how can you How can you get the dynamics between all these different people without without including this one thing that's like, well, here's how you know. The, the Thorpes don't have their best interests at heart, you know. Here's how you know just what, like, well, not just why. There's multiple reasons why John Thorpe is just the worst. But, you know, here's why you know one really major reason why John Thorpe is the worst. Yeah, and it just reminded me of a time in my life where um, we all decided to walk um, from my house to Bridge North, which is a small Shropshire town and then I invited so many people that we set off without one of the people and then I had to get my mum to like pick her up in the car and and drive her to where we were and it was so embarrassing I just felt so guilty and and it like when obviously she forgave me but it was just it was that exact feeling and just not having that it it did. I think they just missed the point in so many ways in the oh, 1986 version. So much. It's like, I don't understand their creative direction at all. I don't understand what they were trying to do with it. And it really does feel, like you said, like different departments of the crew were doing completely different things. And it feels a little bit like someone had looked at a list of out-of-copyright properties and just like drawn from a hat yes. and then they've been like well I guess we're doing a Northanger Abbey adaptation um it kind of had the atmosphere of those um you know those raid BBC Radio 4 dramas where they're just churned out and it and it's just yeah. like Sunday afternoon listening and they're literally just saying the plot out loud yes um and the acting is so bad they they're just the, there is one bit I've written it down Um, where the brother literally says, I am your brother and I love you dearly. Like, he's just saying the plot. Like, the mind boggles. To be fair, that might actually be a line from the book. But why would you include that line over the bit where the Thorpes basically kidnap her? Yes. (laughs) And and it's just, and also it's the way it's delivered. Like it's delivered as if they're just reading out the plot rather than with any any real acting prowess. It's bizarre. It's like, it felt like watching a community theatre pantomime. Yes, absolutely. Like, everything is done to the camera. Like, if you've got a stationary camera and everything is, like, vamped up, just hammed up to the camera, the staging is exactly like a pantomime staging in some of the scenes. John Thorpe is straight out of a pantomime. And the costumes, oh my God, they honestly are, like, just an Amdram wardrobe. You've got, like... Georgian bonnets with Regency dresses and Victorian hairstyles and it's just and and a hat that looked like it was 1950s new look design (laughs) 
And it's all just been mishmashed together and it's very obviously synthetic fabrics. You, you can tell that the ladies aren't wearing support garments because the dresses are hanging off them just like a t-shirt. It's, it just flattens them and just, yeah. And the gaudy, grotesque colours are like something from a circus. I mean... I do like colour and they did use colour a lot more than people think they did and one tiny criticism of the 2007 costumes which I would say are pretty accurate is that they rely too much on white and cream and just white muslin. Well I think they do that certainly for well I was going to say they do that certainly for Catherine's costumes and I think totally appropriately in that I think that that conveys something to us today that is what you want being conveyed for Catherine's character. But actually, I said that, and then I I thought back, and I realised actually, no, that you're right. They do it. They do it for most of the characters. <laughs> and I mean, fair enough, because which is correct. It, like it, you know, it's it's period appropriate. Fair enough. But it's maybe not super imaginative. Yeah. Well, people did wear colour a lot more than you would think to show off that they could afford mm. to buy dyed fabric but um i think because they muslin the fabric muslin is a for some reason a really integral point in the plot um yes and so fair enough putting a load of muslin in that's yeah that's fine i i accept that yeah so i feel like we've spent quite a lot of time bashing the 1987 version Uh, so surprise note for everyone spoilers we didn't love the 1987 (laughs) version of the film (laughs) <laughs> but um, there's one thing that I did want to note about it which I think we're going to struggle to find space for in the kind of scoring section which is the soundtrack oh my god what the hell is going on there what, what in god it, it was like Blackadder it, it had electric guitars it had like what did he do at some point? And yeah. like snare drums, like synth snare drums, and like, and just this woman going like, Whoa! yeah. I think so. I did a review of Northanger Abbey nineteen eighty seven on my blog back when Jane Ostentations was a blog, and um, I think I described it as Meatloaf does Hammer Horror. Absolutely, and also which the place where the music occurs is all wrong as well. So there's this one moment which you would imagine would be a very heartwarming uh, homecoming, where she she's had this terrible journey to get home. She's exhausted, and then her her sisters run out of the house, and her parents, and they all run up to her and hug her. And you would think that it would be upbeat, sort of soaring strings you know and it's not it's just horror film music it's like (laughs) i have to say i have a certain amount of respect for that soundtrack because no it's not congruent (laughs) with anything but um it it at least knows what it's going for it knows what it's about which i think is more than you can say for a lot of the film yeah and i have a a respect for that fair enough i'm just looking at my notes and i did write down at the time it sounds like they became overexcited about the number of instruments that are in the world (laughs) and they just decided to put them all in what just like Almost as a flex on Regency era. Yeah, they're like, oh, like no, look what no. we've got now. Look at us. We can do synths because it's the eighties and synths are the future. <laughs> I I could go on for a really really long time talking about all the things that are wrong with this film, but I think let's compare the two a little bit before we go into scoring. Which did you prefer, Jess? Well, I I certainly preferred um, the 2007 version. Um, I in my notes for the the one of which we do not speak, I've just written I'm so tired. And <laughs> I do have to warn you like we are very much to speak of it. That's very much our sole purpose. Okay, here. fine. Um I tell you what what oh, oh sorry, I'm going back to how awful it was. But This is quite a salient point, I feel. It reminded me of The Room. Have you seen Tommy Wiseau's The Room? Yes, definitely. Um, In that um, 
some things are so bad that they're good and you can kind of tell what they're going for and they might have got it horribly wrong but you can see what they were trying to do whereas with Tommy Wiseau's The Room and also with this one it's like it's so bad it's boring a lot of the time and you you can't even tell what they're trying to do I mean with the music you can but the rest of it some of the decisions are just baffling like all the characters play to the camera, as you said before, except this one scene where the dad, at the very end, the, the dad who lives in Northanger Abbey, I've forgotten his name. Oh, General Tilney. Yes, so General yeah. Tilney he is is saying something important at, at, towards the very end and the camera looks like it just gets picked up and then the camera person just walks round and round General oh, Tilney yes. really close up so you can see his red like his hot red sweaty face and you just think why <laughs> yeah there's some really weird choices and um, I yeah. think one thing so I think that you can take um, a Jane Austen adaptation and have so so much of it fail but it can still be watchable as long as you've got really good chemistry between the two leads but with this... And, oh, my God, what was going on? So another... What was going on? Another moment that should have been embarrassing that wasn't was, you know, towards the end where she's looking into the forbidden West Wing of the house. Nobody oh, yes. goes into the yes. West Wing. And, um, and he discovers her there. And in the... Um, 2007 version he it's very awkward and he's like oh you, you it's shouldn't so you feel it in your skin and she feels embarrassed and ashamed yeah. and he is cross but not wanting to show it whereas in the 1986 version he he's just like a horror he's like a horror villain and it's like this is why you shouldn't have come in here because he will eat your skin yeah and he's got a riding crop which is simultaneously sexy and terrifying. I think that's what they were going for. But the thing is that the, it's meant to mock gothic horrors. It's not meant to be one. Like, the whole message of the story is life isn't a gothic horror. And I don't know how they managed to not see that. I feel like they maybe thought, and again, I'm not entirely sure what they were going for, because whatever... Like whatever motivation you ascribe to them, there's another bit of the film where it's like, well, hang on, why did they do this then? But it feels somewhat like they wanted to satirise gothic novels and that they've done that thing that some people think satire is, which is replicate. Yeah, that's not what satire is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the thing is, I don't think Northanger Abbey is just a satire of gothic novels. It's... It's a commentary, it's a satire of them and also a commentary on this is the way the society relates to them in in a more subtle way than I think you get from the kind of satire that is just replicate this thing. Yeah, I actually found it really sophisticated in the 2007 version and, and I presume the, the book that Jane Austen is able to satirise one genre of novel within another genre of novel and at the point where novels had only just been invented Mm. and were still finding their format and I just find that so clever and so sophisticated and isn't it it's so cool it's one of the reasons this is just one of my favorite books of all time I think probably the reason she does satirize gothic novels is you do satirize what's the latest thing and she's like, oh, these newfangled gothic novels. But even her kind of novel was quite, was quite well, um, I think, new. I think it's a very affectionate dig. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think, think she absolutely must have loved gothic novels. Yeah, well, she did read a lot and her whole family were like novel readers. Uh, so you can see there's this real affection for novels in general and real knowledge and understanding of the novel sphere you know such as it was back then obviously it was a lot smaller than it is now but it was definitely there and she clearly knows it and loves it and that just comes through yeah so much because they were said while to she's be, doing her own thing yeah definitely that they were said to be trashy at the time mm. weren't they people like oh, 100%. oh these these novels, they're they're a, a disposable art form. They're just 
They're just trash people just read they're not educational or edifying in any way. It's just weird that like yesterday's trash is today's treasure, as they say. That's very good. And it, yeah, they also said like it was seen as this thing that young girls were into like young women are into this well that's probably gonna be trash (laughs) yeah that's probably why they claimed it was trashy anything young girls are into that can't be Mm. not not allowed to be art but i i do think one of the reasons young girls are fascinated by gothic horror like then and now is that it's sort of a safe space to explore darkness and and fear and in a world where women often have to worry about real-life fear to a greater extent than a lot of men do. It's like why women like um, like true crime podcasts nowadays, yeah. I think. It's, it's a safe space to explore dark things in a way that you can control. Yeah. And it's ju- it was just so fascinating to realise that that happened hundreds of years ago, just That's as it does now. That's always been going on. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and I think that making Catherine Morland like this young quite innocent heroine who is fascinated with this stuff but also like intensely horrified by well she's like she's fascinated by this stuff and she has this kind of urge to explore that in her mind but when she actually comes across real life um what would have been seen as bad behavior and actually yeah fair enough um what comes later with Isabella Thorpe and Henry's older brother yeah they're not being great um but when she comes across that like real life everyday kind of darkness she's shocked by it she's absolutely shocked and like doesn't understand it she's so naive so for anybody who hasn't read the book or uh, seen the adaptations, uh, just spoiler warning, maybe skip ahead if you, I mean, you're listening to a podcast about the adaptation in quite a lot of depth. So yeah. maybe spoiler warning for the whole thing. Damage the might end. already um, have been done. <laughs> but um, yeah, so towards the end of the novel, there is a twist where you find out that Catherine's brother, James, had been engaged to her best friend, in air quotes, Isabella Thorpe. And you find out that Isabella had been carrying on with Henry Tilney, the romantic lead's older brother, Captain Tilney. And so the book is very much presenting it as she has done wrong by James. But there's also this, uh, you know, for breaking faith with him and, and still courting with other men. But there's also this element where it is heavily implied that they've had sex and that he's left her basically like he's he's had sex with her and then just gone like oh okay bye then which was a really really crappy thing to do to a young woman in regency society like a really really crappy thing to do and there's a i think i read into the book and it is by no means the only reading of it but i read into it that there is a censure of both isabella thorpe's behavior in going along with this and actually having sex with captain tilney and also like allowing his advances in the first place you know encouraging him and and flirting with him and courting him in the first place when she's engaged to someone else Um, and it is made quite clear that a large factor of her decision making is money yeah and there's also censure of captain tilney for taking advantage of her that way you know of um well, it's pretty. It's pretty subtle, isn't it? There's there are a lot of it nuances very and subtle. subtlety. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of nuance there, I think. And so there's there's definitely multiple multiple levels of what's another word for disagreement that I'm looking for? Like multiple levels of condemnation. Yeah. That you can validly read into the text. Well, but this was a really everyday kind of behaviour. Well, not everyday. Like it wasn't talked about a lot. But Catherine just takes absolutely ages to get it. And I'm not convinced that she even really does get it by the end. Like she, she sees that Isabella's been flirting with this guy. She sees that they, she's essentially been what would I guess would have been counted as like basically cheating on James. I'm not convinced she knows they had sex <laughs> by the end of the book because she doesn't like when you come to that non-gothic kind of behaviour. She's just like doesn't get it. She yeah. doesn't see it. It's almost as if perhaps she doesn't want to see it. She wants yeah. to retreat into her gothic novels. Because there's certainly that moment which I absolutely adored, um, where she there's this creepy box, this wooden chest 
in the room and mm. she's like, I need the key for this box in my room. And when she finally gets it and finally opens it, it's just a load of laundry lists of just all the clothes they've sent to the laundry. And on on these really battered old scrolls, but when she looks at them, she's like, oh. And, and it's just the perfect metaphor for the entire film. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's just this moment of like, oh, I've I've been a bit of a fool, haven't I? But yeah, I think she willfully retreats from real world. Oh, um, I think problems. you're right. It's what I do, and I think it's what really? a lot of people do. Oh, absolutely. Because the thing is, as well, she's so shocked by it. Like, she'll read the monk, and if you're not aware of what the monk is, maybe do a Google. But like, serious trigger warning for non-consent. It's it's a really, for the time, out there book. It focuses on some really sexual stuff. And so she'll read this book. But when people are actually behaving in a, an immodest way, she's so shocked. She's like, what? It happens in and, real life as well? Yeah. I think you're completely right when you say she's exploring this in a completely controlled way, but not in a way that actually, like when it's real life, it's a completely different story. Well, it was an interesting time in history, really, because the, as I think, as I, think I might have said before, history doesn't just beca- start out really Puritan and frumpy and then get more and more liberal and sort of saucy as time goes on. It goes in waves. And so they were just getting over the Georgian era, which was incredibly louche and free and it was kind of on the verge of the more sort of the 19th century the Victorian era where it was very Puritan and prim and proper and so I might just be reading this into it but maybe some influences for the book are a a bit like oh it's going into a bit more of a, a prim age and maybe the younger people are a bit more staid than the older people who, mm. and especially since I, uh, when I was refreshing my knowledge of, of it, I read that Jane Austen, they think she was quite uh, very early in her career when she wrote it. So she might not have been that far out of that, that young, naive stage herself. In which case, it shows amazing self-knowledge and, yeah. um, you know, and, and self-awareness. But so there were all those different kinds of things and I do have an interesting fact, but it might be a bit dark. Okay, let's hear it. Uh, so uh, there are some schools of thought that say that the reason plot lines that featured sort of non-consent and sort of, you know, this villainous man kidnapping this woman, doing terrible things to her, and they were actually read and often fairly popular among women at the time. And one theory goes that women were expected to be so prim and proper and moral, but they enjoyed reading about this situation because it's like the woman couldn't possibly... Like, uh, how do I explain? I'm putting this really badly. In real life, in society, women had to be so prim and proper, but this is a situation where she can't say no and, like, she can't be prim and proper because there's this evil man is doing all these things to her and she's just helpless and it's almost as if because it's a situation where she can't like it's not her fault and it's not sort of her duty to be do do you know what I mean I do know what you mean yeah but it's very sad I do think it's very sad that that's the only way that women could explore their sexuality at the time is in a context where that they are basically given like um plausible deniability of like oh well she couldn't have said no um so it's not her fault i think it's really sad that that's the only well i think i totally understand what you're saying i think actually it's not necessarily about the plausible deniability mm. um because this absolutely is a phenomenon that happens in in situations where women have their sexual agency completely denied you know like women are not seen to be supposed to have sexual desires at all there's an extent to which non-consent or reluctance fantasies are very common because Mm. it is a way of removing responsibility it's a way of exploring your sexual desires without having to take responsibility for them because it's someone else's choice right oh yeah that's interesting and yeah. I think that that was absolutely... Th- like, my 
my belief with very little evidence is that that was probably the case with a lot of these books as well at that time. Yeah, and maybe they were sort of just doing like a kind of literary Stockholm syndrome where they were just like, well, this is... Yeah, well, I think certainly with things like The Monk, that did happen. And I think that there's a really interesting bit where... So when Catherine goes to Bath, she meets the Thorpes, and Isabella Thorpe is encouraging her to read The Mysteries of Adolfo. Oh, yes. Which is a gothic horror novel that has shades of this kind of situation. But it's John Thorpe who gets her to read The Monk. And The Monk is where it's crossed a line. And he's the bad boy character, isn't he, John Thorpe? He's and he is, the scoundrel. He's not, just like, he's not just a scoundrel because that kind of implies something, I think, kind of attractive about him, which I really don't think there is anything. Oh, no, he's implied. just horrible, isn't he? Yeah. I think it shows him as a sleaze. Yeah, that's more apt. And I think it shows this bad influence that the Thorpes are having on Catherine. Yeah. That it's like, oh, they've crossed a line here and they're encouraging her to cross it too. Yeah, it, yeah, definitely. So it's so interesting how she uses novels to represent things that are happening in her novel. Yeah. It's just oh, mind blown. It's good. There's this one bit that gets really, really meta where um, one of the characters says, I, I can't remember who it is, but they say, hey, Northanger Abbey would make a good title for a, a gothic novel. Yeah. And, then, and it's like, oh, great. So that's Jane Austen congratulating herself on her own choice of novel title. Oh, it's just, yeah, it's it's very, very meta. Um, as an aside, can I just say, you know her friend, is it Isabella, her best friend? Yeah. So I just love the way that they make friends, which is they get introduced and then Isabella says, right, well, we're going to be best friends now. Let's do it. Yeah, and then they are. And, and Catherine's just are. like, oh, OK. And I kind of wish that happened nowadays because I think it's there's no protocol for making friends with someone. Like at primary school, you're just like, let's be friends. OK. And even as an adult, there's a protocol for like being in a relationship. There's like a set of rules. There's etiquette to pursue someone as, like, a partner. But you can't just say to someone, I shall be your friend now. And they're like, oh, oh, okay. Like, that's just not a thing. So I yeah, just... Yeah, no, I think there should be, like, a socially accepted way of going, shall we be friends? And then you go, yes, or, uh, no, not right now. <laughs> yeah, I just liked Isabella's, you know, cojones yeah. in, in just being like, yes, you are my friend. So, shall we get on to the scoring section of our evening? Yes, let's do that. Okay, so uh, for new listeners, if you are new listeners, every episode we score the adaptation on five main categories. We each give it a score out of 10 for each of those categories to end up with a percentage score so that we can learn what is the ultimate and best ostentation. And our categories are sexiness of leading man, Likeability of leading lady. How funny are the side characters? How Austinly is the vibe? And enjoyability. Uh, they are completely subjective, and that is fine. Do not at us if you disagree. And then we'll also talk uh, about the sexiness of leading lady, the likability of the leading man, the faithfulness of to the book, and how well it vibes with modern modern sensibilities, because those are also important to some people. So we want to give good options for whether or not you should watch each adaptation. So, should we start with sexiness of leading man? I feel like we're going to have a lot to say. Um, yes. Um. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Jess? Right, so for the 2007 version, I thought he was pretty, pretty alright, but perhaps a, a bit of a stuffed shirt. He, <laughs> he certainly wasn't the brooding presence of Mr Darcy, but more was he the sort of more cheery sort of jocund presence of the other bloke from the other one who jumped in the window mr knightley yeah you think you think mr knightley is more cheery well, and jokey cheery and jo- than henry tilney not cheery but sort of high energy i i have to disagree huh. i think i think mr Til- um, to be fair I think like the point of this podcast is that I know a lot about the books and you're coming to this completely fresh. So I'm probably bringing a lot of my own interpretation of the books and like projecting onto the characters on the screen, whereas you're just reacting to what's on the screen. Like, oh, it's just a bloke wandering around saying words. (laughs) We should put that on a poster for this podcast. (laughs) 
Jane Austen. It's just a bloke wandering around saying words. Um, yeah, but I think maybe you're right. Maybe Jeremy Northam's Mr. Knightley is like more high energy than J.J. Fields' Mr. Tilney. Uh, so, yeah, J.J. Fields is playing Henry Tilney in the 2007 version. I think he's good. I think he's charming. I don't think J.J. Fields, as a like as a, a person who is just stood still, like a photo, <laughs> to me, is particularly attractive. But I think he's very charming I did find... and charismatic in a way that I think makes him more attractive when he's on screen. Yeah, and I certainly found his character very uh, sensitive and supportive and kind. I suppose, um, especially regarding his sister, I think there was some mm. point in the story where his sister had been in some sort of um, engagement and she couldn't carry on with it because of money woes or something like that. And he was, you know, very discreet, very kind and very tolerant. Um, So, yeah, he's more a sort of a sensitive soul than perhaps some of the other uh, leading men have been. Well, I think he's actually having the most fun (laughs) out of all the leading men. He does this thing, which as a teenager, I thought was charming, where... He's always jokingly saying stuff, often like jokingly saying sexist stuff or or nonsense stuff that he doesn't actually believe. And he's kind of doing it to make fun of those behaviours or those mindsets. Ah. And when I was, you know, like 15 or whatever, I thought he was great. I thought he was brilliant. And nowadays... I read it and I'm like, oh my God, I've heard this so many times and often by people who do actually think this. Like, you know, they say that it's a joke, but it's not fully a joke. I mean, even if you say it as a joke, you're still saying it. You're still saying it. And there are still people out there who won't realise it's a joke. Yes, and I've still heard it from people who don't think it's a joke. So it's not always that funny. Like, it's sometimes just really tiring. Oh, yeah, I know what you mean. It it can be exhausting. Yeah. And it's like, it's not original, you know. But I think when I was 15, I hadn't heard all that stuff done to death. When I was 15, it it did seem smart and funny to me. And I think J.J. Fields, because they soften that, like, sarcastic nature of his, he's a lot less tiring. (laughs) And he's a lot nicer. He's a lot, like, he seems kind. He's got a lot of substance. He's a lot softer than how you just described him in in this film. I mean, there's more to Henry Tilney than just the sarcasm. But... I certainly don't like him as much as I used to. I really like the way he wasn't a pushover, though, and his dad. Well, oh, he was a yeah. bit of a pushover at first, and I was like, oh, no, is he going to be a pushover? Is he just going to cave to convention? But then he doesn't, and that was so nice, such a lovely moment. Yeah. Like, Henry Tunney's still one of my favourite Austin leading men. I think because all these stories culminate in a proposal of marriage, and, and that's seen as, like, the the fa- happy ending and, and it yeah. does make me quite sad that that's always seen as oh life solved um but for me the moment that that was the romantic moment was when he was like i'm not going to listen to my dad i'm going to marry you and you know yeah. i'm going to be with you anyway that that's true proof of a happy ending not just yeah. the marriage proposal i really love the way that they do that scene in the 2007 version as well like, i think that the the two leads just have so much chemistry yeah, it was yeah, a really lovely moment. Yeah. So I, I really love J.J. Fields' Henry Tilney. Um, Peter Firth's Henry Tilney. Um, oh. So he's... he is, he is he meant to be a student? No, he's not. A, he's meant to be a clergyman. Okay, so... But his brother... Is his brother Captain Tilney meant to be a, a student? No, his brother Captain Tilney's in the military. Oh, I, I, I swear they were described as students or, or some or, or very being oh. very young at some point. Yeah, I think you might be thinking of John Thorpe. So uh. John Thorpe and James Morland, Catherine's brother, those two are at university together. Oh yeah. Oh well, yeah. it's not um, anything huge. It's just that I thought. A lot of the cast, the men especially, were about 10 years older than Mm -hmm. you could plausibly imagine Mm -hmm. um, they would be in the the script. And it's like, oh yeah, you're a student and you've got like, I mean, mean, you know, it's not their fault, they're (laughs) not in the first flush of youth, but you're a student and you've got like worry lines on your head and like a receding hairline. It's just not very believable. 
No. And I mean, I think Peter Firth, when he filmed this, was like 36 or something. Just just a bizarre casting decision. Just It was absolutely bizarre. Like, an absolutely bizarre choice. Just... Odd. And like... Yeah. Is it me or was he more snooty and, and sort he of was haughty? so snooty. And I feel like with J.J. Fields, his Henry Tilney like really leans away from that kind of like acerbic sarcasm and just saying sexist things for the sake of sexist things. Whereas Peter first, like, you can't even tell he's joking. He's just saying it. There's this one bit where he describes... Is it him? He describes the main character as natural, which at the time was an a insult meaning a simpleton. <laughs> and yeah, he just says some terrible things. He's just awful. The way that he looks at her does not, to me, say love. No, it doesn't even say lust. It just says, I want to wear you. He's very like supercilious, isn't he? Oh, it's just... He's awful. Like... It's not Peter Firth's fault that he is less attractive than his brother. But he's also made a hell of a lot of choices where it's just like, why have you played it this way? I've just found um, the pickup line he uses, which is, are you still a disgrace to your sex? Yeah. And I'm just like, was that ironic? Wasn't it? Who knows? Like all these lines, they're in the book, right? But it's the way you tell them. But it's the way you tell them. You're just saying it meanly. It's so, so strange. I might have to give... Oh, are we doing scores? Yes, let's do scores. So, first bloke... So, 2007, JJ Fields, out of 10. I'm, I'm going to give him a, a, a 7, I think. Yeah, I'd probably give him a 7 as well. Or maybe even a 7.5, because I do love Henry Tilney. Hmm. And I, I think JJ Fields is the best version of him. I'm going to give him an 8 for me, because Henry Tilney has a... A place in my heart. Oh, okay. So I will give him an eight because, yeah, it, it's not just about JJ Fields, it's about JJ Fields as Henry Tilney. So I'm going to give him an eight. Okay, the, the greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. And the second bloke, you know what? I'm afraid I'm going to have to give him a four. A four? Yeah. Have I gone as low as a four before? I don't know, but I think that's really generous. Mm, okay. I'm going to give him a zero. A zero? But I'm he giving w- him a zero. He walked onto the set and, s- and he, he was present. Surely being present. He was present. <laughs> Surely being present should give him at least a one, you know, like... He he competed. He. I'll give him a half. Okay, not point five for not being John Thorpe. Have I have I done someone else's a four? Because I think he's the worst one out of all of them. So just in case I've done someone else's a four, I'll bump him down to a three. Okay, so a three. He's got a three point five, which is I'm pretty sure the lowest we're gonna get <laughs> on this section. <laughs> three point five out of twenty. <laughs> right. Um. So likability of leading lady. So I love Catherine Morland as a character. I just love her. I think she's wonderful. Bless her. Okay, I sympathise so much with her multiple faux pas. Faux passes? Faux pas. Faux pas. Faux pas. That, um, that I, yeah, I felt a real connection to <laughs> some of the terrible situations she's Me been too. in. And the melodramatic wanting things and being oblivious and oh yeah she's she's the ultimate flawed her- heroine she's not like um elizabeth bennett who's just this perfect what someone you want to be she's yeah she just she is us rather than who we want to be yeah in my opinion yeah 100 percent. like elizabeth i think when i was reading these books the first time as a teen i read pride and prejudice first and i thought i was Lizzie Bennet and then I read Northanger Abbey and I was like oh no <laughs> Lizzie Bennet is who I hope to be when I grow up <laughs> like Catherine Morland is who I actually am um oh yeah I, I like to think I've gone to somewhere in between yeah I, I think you're on the way I think I started out as Catherine Morland went through a terrible stage of being Emma um <laughs> I don't know don't know where <laughs> I am now but yeah maybe I'm Mr Darcy just grumpy now yeah. um but yeah, so I, I found her very likeable. I'm going to give her an eight. Eight. In the 2007 yeah. version. I think I might give her an eight as well. 
I love Felicity Jones's Catherine Morland. We've not really talked about the portrayals very much yet at all, but I love Felicity Jones. I think she's just brilliant in this role. She just shows the embarrassment and uncomfortableness. Oh, she's so good at it. And she she makes it endearing rather than annoying, you know? Yeah, and she doesn't, it, despite being quite silly, um, she doesn't come off across as being really insecure. She's no, like, not she's, at all, yeah. She's it got a strong foundation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I will give her an eight as well. Catherine Schlesinger's. Catherine Morland, I think, was less good. The way she was portrayed, and it was partly the script, was she's she was so insecure and self-effacing. And she was constantly saying things like, she'd say something and then she'd be like, oh, I do not speak well enough to be understood. Like, she just criticises herself so much in this version. And she really hams, like, when Felicity Jones says those lines, they're like, they're like asides, right? But yeah. when Catherine Schlesinger says them, she's putting her all into it. And she always looks and sounds so surprised. She's always breathy with these, like, her eyes open, like, really wide. Like, she's permanently like, oh, what? <laughs> they certainly cast her for the um, gothic horror element. Yeah. <laughs> um, she reminded me loads. I, d- I don't know if it might be the same actor, actually, as Lady Fuchsia in the BBC adaptation of Gormenghast. I haven't seen it. I'm going to look at her IMDb page. Hang on. It was just like Gormenghast. It was like, so Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast is a a novel about a very deliberately gothic castle with all fusty rituals happening every day with this royal family and it's all ridiculously overblown and, and melodramatic, but deliberately so. And this film... It just reminded me exactly of Gormenghast, which it really shouldn't have. <laughs> um, I'm just looking up her IMDb page and it wasn't her, I'm afraid. Oh, well. Um, yeah. But I think it's just the 80s hair. Yeah, I, it is a very 80s hair. And I think that in the in the 1980s BBC stuff, everything was so... like They had this acting style that was so wooden and overblown at the same time. And it, yeah. I don't like it. How is that possible? I I don't know how it's possible, but it is possible. Yeah, they they really went for it, though. And I think for Catherine Morland, it's such a bad choice because she has to be so artless. It's like when I was little and I got these um, these (laughs) turquoise loafers and all my schoolmates said that they were both frumpy and garish. And I was like, how, how can you have both? But I've turned that into a fine art. Um, You've managed my to life. make it yeah. your look, and I think it works very well. I call you. it frumpcore. Yeah. But uh, that's beside the point. But it, it is that feeling of like, how can you be wooden and overblown at the yeah. same time? But they can. They did yeah. it. Yeah. What are you going to score her? Um, oh, a five. Poor thing. Five. I think I will give her a five as well. I don't actively dislike her. I just don't want to watch it unless I've got, you know, a wine and some friends to bash it with. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I mean, we had friends and and I just, I honest to God, I literally had to lie on the floor. (laughs) I was so fatigued by this film. Yeah, it's a lot. It was a lot. Because our discussion went on for quite some time after this, uh, we've decided to split this up into two episodes. So this is where part one ends, and we will be back with part two, where we'll focus mostly on the 2007 version of Northanger Abbey next time. But until then, you can find us at Ostentations on Twitter, or email us hello at Jane Ostentations. Bye!